thought of it yesterday, so still got some planning to do. Sure. We'll make sure that the uh, mics are working first. Do we have sound? Turn. They're both on. Well, no, I guess it turned off after a while. Okay, now it says it's on green. This one. Testing? Okay, we're good. Okay, we're starting now. All right. Well, if you turn to the book of Job, this is our seventh week studying that Old Testament book. I did start reading a really good book this week. It's by N.T. Wright. It's called Evil and the Justice of God. And he points out something really interesting that I want to share with you. That in the history of the Christian church, there have been two major periods of thought about suffering and God as the cause of suffering or allowing evil. In the early church, this was a big thing, like with Augustine in the city of God. He talked about people who were being killed during the barbarian invasions of Rome. And so Christians also, for many of those centuries, were under heavy persecution because they were Christians and most of the Roman emperors were pagans. So there was good reason in the early church to discuss why would God allow us to get hurt. But then once the medieval times came and the Roman Catholic Church became sort of the ruler of the Western world, all that stopped. The suffering was gone. We weren't being persecuted all the time. So for a thousand years, nobody paid much attention to the whole question of it. We were just going through the motions, going through rote, and not a lot of suffering. But here's what happened to cause what we call the modern question of theodicy, which is why does God allow evil? And it was on one day, believe it or not, it was on November the 1st, 1755. And here's what happened on that day. In Portugal, the biggest city in Portugal at the time was Lisbon. Lisbon is now the capital of Portugal. I don't think it was at that time. It's a port city. It was the most important city in Portugal because this big bay allowed them to have their navy ships and all their merchant ships. They had trade all over the world. Portugal at that time was a colonial power and had places in Asia and Africa and all this stuff. Well, anyway, in Lisbon on November the 1st, 1755, it was All Saints Day. All Saints Day is when the Catholic Church reveres or worships, whichever way you look at it, the saints. And so all of the people get up in the morning. On a, It was a Saturday. They all get up in the morning and put candles all over the house that are lit to symbolize the light of the saints in the world. And then they all go to Mass. Well, at 9.30, while everyone was in church, there was a little tremor, tremor, a uh, small earthquake, and everyone ignored it because it was small. It was only about 3.0. It's the kind you get around here makes the glass rattle a little. But they ignored it. And then five minutes later, there were three earthquakes, probably magnitude 8 and 9. And all of the cathedrals in Lisbon, made out of stone and brick, collapsed, killing twenty to 30,000 people. So... The survivors who made it out of the buildings ran to the coast where there were no big buildings falling down. 
because the quake lasted for 10 minutes. I think even the great earthquake in San Francisco only lasted for five. But it was off the coast, off the coast of Portugal. And while they stood at the coast crying and shouting and terrified, the ocean went away. The tide went out and they couldn't even see the ocean. It was gone. And the whole Navy and all the ships were sitting in the mud and falling over. A lot of people were curious as to what was going on and went down to pick up fish and stuff off the bottom. And then three tsunamis hit 30 to 70 feet high and killed 20,000 more people. And it destroyed all the wooden houses that were still standing. It was the stone ones crumbled in the earthquake. But the tsunamis killed all these people and knocked all the houses down and all of the candles fell over and caused fires so that every bit of wood in the city burned. So almost everyone in Lisbon died, 60,000 people on one day. And this was such a big news all over the world that all the world's philosophers and writers started writing essays. Why would God allow this to happen? He killed Christian people on a Christian holiday, worshiping him. How could he do that? And so this is when the modern question of suffering came up. Well, that uh, did lead to a few good things. It wasn't all dark. All those people died, of course. But some of the things that came out of that was scientists started studying the science of geology and earthquakes. They started designing stronger buildings to withstand earthquakes. And people started noticing that when the sea goes out, you don't go out a tsunami's coming. It was the first time anyone had heard of a tsunami or knew about it. So anyway, in the long run, cities became stronger and smarter, and people started watching out for natural disasters. We started fire departments to try to put out fires and things like this. So there was both good and bad in those disasters in 1755. But as far as Job goes, on a more personal level, Job has gone through equally horrific things. He was a wealthy, godly man, and he didn't know that he was in a spiritual contest between God and evil. The devil claimed that Job only loves God because God makes him rich and safe. So God allows Satan to destroy everything Job has to see if that's true. And it turned out not to be true. Everything Job owned was gone in one day. Two of the attacks were from evil humans. All of his donkeys, oxen, and camels were stolen by raiders. But one servant said, the fire of God came down out of heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them all. And then, though, after all those disasters, Lucifer dropped the big news on Job, which is that a great wind came and knocked the house down during their celebration and killed them all. Just like in Lisbon when the, house, the churches collapsed and killed them all. What Job then had to face is that God either killed his kids or at least allowed someone to kill his kids. Because it was obviously from God. Fire from heaven doesn't come from people. But how did Satan's prediction work out? If you looked at Job uh, verses 20 through 22 of chapter 1, here's what he said. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So the devil was totally wrong. The devil said he would curse God to his face. He didn't. In fact, he blessed God. It was exactly the opposite of what Satan expected and swore would happen. But the day did get worse after that because in ancient burial traditions, you can't leave the bodies out overnight. You've got to bury them quickly, within 24 hours, which means that Job and his wife and his servants would have to go out and dig the bodies out of the rubble, wash them clean, wrap them in cloth, and put them in the burial cave. So they would spend that whole day burying their kids 
and grandkids if there were some, which is likely, and all the servants. So uh, that day just got worse and worse. Two dozen bodies, I would guess. Now we don't understand why God causes disasters like this. Um, we're too weak-minded to judge it. Now I gave a, an incorrect quote slightly. Frederick Buhner said that God cannot explain himself to us any more than we can explain Einstein's theories to clams. Last week I said it was cockroaches, I got confused. Clams, cockroaches, they're both pretty primitive. But clams are even more primitive if you think about it. Cockroaches move, clams don't really move much. But anyway, that's basically what we are. When we try to understand God, we're like clams. We don't understand him. And he doesn't even try to explain himself. We just lost sound. I wonder if the batteries are out. i got to get a new battery tester. The battery tester is uh, doesn't work. There it goes. Okay, we're back. New batteries. So at any rate, what I'm saying is, is that God does not even attempt to explain himself. And people ask why. Why doesn't he just tell us why he does this? He can't, because you can't understand it, is basically the answer. So, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, this is something we can understand, because he explains it to us. Peter tells his readers that they can rejoice in fiery trials. Why? Because it proves the genuineness of your faith, which brings praise, honor, and glory to Jesus Christ. And this is the basic answer to everything on earth. Why does God do things? He does things for his own glory, and not for, his, not for our comfort. You remember the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the enjoy him forever is true in forever. It does not necessarily mean now. We do not always enjoy God now, because there are times when he seems to hide from us, as he did from Job. But we do always glorify God, whether we like it or not. You can either do it voluntarily, or he can get glory from you other ways. So it's better to do it voluntarily. But my last point from last week was about Job's use of God's names in this book. And I find this really interesting. His famous line in the response to those disasters is, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Yahweh gave, Yahweh took away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Now Yahweh is in many translations put Jehovah. And it is the most used name of God in the Bible. So it's not strange that Job uses it three times in one verse. That happens a lot. What is strange is that Job will not use that name again except once in the whole rest of the book. In all of his long speeches, he no longer called God Jehovah. And that may be significant because usually people use the name Jehovah to mean my God, my personal God. It's like God's name. It's like I'm John. You could call me many things. You could call me pastor or moron or whatever. But I'm still John. So in a sense, it could be that Job no longer thinks of God as his God. He's just that God. All the rest of the book, he's going to call him God Almighty, Lord of Hosts, uh, El Shaddai, El Elohim. He won't use Yahweh again except once, and the one time he uses it is when he's talking about how other people talk about God. The implication may be that once Job starts to falter in his faith, which we'll get to soon, he no longer thinks of God as his God. He is God, but he's not my God. He's, he's scary now. He doesn't like me anymore. Whereas his friends also usually use 
the names El Shaddai and Elohim. But interestingly, at the very end of the book, when God talks to Job out of the whirlwind, almost always he says, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. He's reminding Job, I am your God. So I think that's an important point. So let's start now in chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and you'll see a lot of this sounds just like chapter 1, with small differences. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, to destroy him without cause. Now the first two verses are almost identical to the verses in chapter 1, but there is one small interesting difference. In chapter 1, it seems like God summoned Satan to heaven to report, but he didn't have any particular declaration as to why. In other words, it might have been just a regular old report. Periodically, he brings the devil up to see what he's been up to, even though, of course, he knows, but he wants an answer from the devil. This time, though, it appears he had a purpose in summoning him because it mentions twice that Satan came to present himself before the Lord. In other words, God wants an update on their bet, so to speak. Satan swore that Job would falter and curse God. So now he wants Satan to admit that he failed. He's bringing him up and he asks him, what about Job? What happened with Job? I allowed you to attack him. What happened? Well, first, Satan insolently explains his doings on earth, how he's been just wandering around. But then eventually he gets to blameless and upright Job. And the last sentence is the big change. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. There are three main points here. Job is still loyal to me, God says. He still hasn't cursed me like you said he would. Second, the Satan incited God against Job to destroy him. And third, there was no cause for that destruction. The Satan swore God would be cursed by Job if, if all of his wealth and family was removed. All his wealth and family is gone, except for his wife, we'll get to her later, and yet he still is not cursing God. So the devil was wrong. The, all those brilliant tactical demonstrations on Job that he did were brilliant and thorough. I imagine that no man could survive that day other than someone like Job. I don't think I would survive that day. But not only did he survive, he worshipped and blessed God. So Satan has totally failed, and he has to admit it before God. Does he? No, he does not admit it. But the most difficult piece is at the end of that verse. Satan incited God, but God destroyed Job. I want you to understand that. Satan destroyed Job. He was the immediate cause. In other words, he's the guy that did it, physically, literally, on the spot. However, God allowed him to do it maybe even hinted that he could do it. So it is still God who is the ultimate cause. And God admits that. You incited me to destroy him. All right? So God did it. Now, you might say, well, that's impossible. A lot of modern Christians will tell you, oh, all the evil in the world is caused by Satan or humans. Well, that's when you define evil as moral evil. That would be true. But the fact of the matter is, natural disasters are often caused by God, not by Satan. The flood is the most obvious example. The Satan has no power to destroy the earth by water. God did. 
So God is the ultimate cause. And worse than that, God admits there was no cause to destroy Job. Did you see that? Job didn't deserve any of these disasters. If anyone on the earth deserved horrible things to happen to him, it wasn't Job. Job's a nice guy. And yet God destroyed him without any cause. Now I want you to understand, though, that that is different than saying there was no reason. Having a cause is different than having a reason. You see, the all-wise God doesn't do anything without a reason. No cause means Job didn't deserve the calamities that came upon him. But God is free to act in his world in any way he wants to. He can destroy creatures if he wants to. He decided for his own glory to let the Satan destroy Job to see his grit, to show that he was a good man. It was a test. There's a difference between a test and a temptation or an evil. The devil challenged God's lovability. Satan says, nobody loves you because you're God. You're unlovable. The only reason he loves you is because you give him stuff. If you stop giving him stuff, he won't love you. There's no reason. That was false. It was a lie. So God, though, will turn this whole nasty business into a long book of poetry demonstrating the problems of evil and suffering. And we call that theodicy. So there is a reason, even if there is not a cause. Job didn't deserve it, and yet there was a reason for what God did. If you need another example, it's pretty easy. Take the example of Jesus. In fact, many people show that Job's suffering is a type or a shadow showing Jesus' future suffering. Jesus is going to suffer just like Job did in a way. He would feel pain and enormous suffering while deserving none of it. If you want to say that godly people, God can't allow godly people to suffer, you're wrong because it's obvious in the Bible that godly people suffer, including Jesus, who never sinned. So there could never be a cause for Jesus to, sin, to suffer except that he chose to suffer on our behalf. So you cannot say that all suffering is deserved, and that is where Job's friends will go wrong shortly. So now let's go to verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. This shows you that Satan does not give up. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Now, if this was really a poker game, Satan just doubled down. He's admitting he lost the first round, but he's insisting he will win the second round. The reason I failed the first time, I just didn't realize how evil Job really is. He is so selfish he didn't care if his kids and grandkids died. He didn't care if all of his servants died. He doesn't care if all the animals are gone. He is so selfish. All he cares about is his own body. As long as he's alive, he will be happy. So we didn't test him hard enough. We should have tested him where he really cared about himself was his skin. So I'll show you how much Job loves you. He will not love you if you touch his bones and his skin. Now, the bones might imply the bones are your deepest part inside your body. You can't get to them except with surgery. You've got to cut through the skin to get into your bones. It may imply not just do I want to touch his physical person, but I want to touch his deep down spirit and emotions. In other words, not only am I going to touch his body, I'm going to wreck his social life. And we'll get to that, how exactly Satan does that soon. The only limitation God sets on this test is you can't kill him. You can hurt him really bad but he cannot die. 
That's the only limitation set on Job. And you know there's a lot of room there for pain. And that's what the devil's going to do. So let's look. Oh, God calls off his guardian angels who have been protecting Job from the devil. And now the demons will attack him. Look at verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the middle of the ashes. Hey, now one question is uh, an important question that we can't answer exactly. How long a time it elapsed between Job's first disaster day and Job's second disaster day? It doesn't say and it doesn't even imply it. It might have been a, a week or it might have been a month. It depends, you know, maybe the devil wanted to give it time to sink in. But we don't really know. The only case we have of knowing how long things are going to happen is in chapter 7, verse 3. In chapter 7, verse 3, Job says, I have been sitting here in months of emptiness. So whenever chapter 7 occurs, which appears to be in his second reply to the friends, he had been there for months. My guess is then that perhaps a month elapsed before day one disaster and day two disaster. But then Job was in this physically harmed state for months until the friends showed up. It took them a while to get there. They had to hear about it, and then they had to get together and then come. So that's the only thing we can be sure of. So after, say, a month, the Satan returns and strikes Job with the sickness. Now from all the descriptions we find in the book, most theologians, and, and I agree with them, believe that Satan struck Job with a form of leprosy. It's called elephantitis or elephantiasis. And the reason it's called that, its other nickname is black leprosy because it's the worst kind of leprosy. It starts out as red, itchy blisters all over your body, if you're unfortunate to get it all over. Some people just get it on one or two limbs, but he got it all over his body. And these red, itchy sores, the more you itch them, just like poison ivy, they pop and pus starts coming out. And then the skin around them dies and turns black and scabby. And your feet swell up like elephants. If you've ever seen someone with really huge swollen feet, you can't even tell their feet. They're like stumps. They're like elephant legs. That's why they call it elephantitis. And there's deep pain. It causes you to vomit a lot. But the worst symptom of it is probably the deadness. Leprosy is basically a nerve damage. It kills all the nerves, which means you don't feel pain. Now, in a way, you might think that's great. Oh, I can't feel pain. The trouble is, is when you can't feel pain, you can be seriously injured and not know it. So what happens is your fingers fall off or break off and you don't even know it until later and you look and there's no fingers, you didn't feel it. You realize that pain is a good thing? I mean, it can be bad when it's prolonged and severe, but the purpose of pain is to warn you. It's your body's warning system that something is wrong. If you touch your hand on a hot stove, you're gonna burn it. The burn is important because you know there's a danger and you pull your hand off. If you didn't feel pain, your hand would just flame out like a whopper on the char grill. So you want to have pain. Job doesn't have those pains anymore. He still has some pains. But he's vomiting, he can't sleep, and he has nightmares. And uh, worst of all, I'm just joking, worst of all, he says his wife despises his breast. Got bad breast. But I'm guessing that's pretty low on the totem pole of all of his pains. So this is what uh, Job has got, this disease. Now one reason to believe and recognize that this is leprosy is because of the effect it had on other people, not just him. You see, Satan didn't just want Job to suffer physically. 
He wanted Job to suffer emotionally. A leper gets thrown out of society. You don't get to live with other people anymore when you have lepers. They form leper colonies because the lepers will are able to be with each other, but they can't be with anybody who's whole because of the danger of, of uh, contagion, of spreading it. Leprosy is somewhat contagious. It's probably not as contagious as you think. It's not like if you touch a leper, you automatically get leprosy. But if you sleep in a leper's bedding, you'll probably get leprosy. Or if you spend a lot of time touching lepers, you might get leprosy. So it is somewhat contagious. But anyway, let me show you some examples of this from hundreds of years later during the Mosaic Law. This is the law. Now, in the Old Testament, when they use the word leprosy, it doesn't necessarily mean black leprosy or the leprosy we think of. It basically meant serious skin diseases. So it might include other things, probably not acne, but um, psoriasis or something. But anyway, if someone, here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 13. This is what the Jews were supposed to do if someone had a skin disease. This is verses 45 and 46. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He will be unclean. All the days he has the sores, he is unclean. He is unclean and he must dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if you got leprosy, you were kicked out of the town, out of the camp. And you had to live alone or maybe with other lepers. And you didn't get to come back until your disease was gone. That's, for most people, that is a lifetime exile. Because leprosy does not go away, naturally. At least I've not heard of cases of it going away. It's a permanent, debilitating disease. So let's look more carefully at the social aspect of Job's leprosy. This has a huge impact on his mind and emotions. Now, how do we know that or why does that happen? It's because most humans are social creatures. We were designed that way. We were designed to have relationships with other people. We're not designed like uh, lizards say. Lizards are not very social. Lizards mostly live alone. The female might live with her babies for a little while, but then she leaves and the babies are on their own. So lizards are very independent creatures. But humans and mammals are not. Mammals are all social creatures. Even introverts, even people who like to be alone, uh, still need some social contact. I'm a little bit of an introvert. I need a lot of time on my own, but I do come out a few days a week and talk to people, come out of my hermit cave. Well, Job was probably an extrovert, though, so this is even harder on him because he loves to be in social contact with people. Now, how do we know that? Turn over to, verse, to chapter 29 of Job. We're going to look at several verses in chapter 29. This is one of Job's speeches later on in the book. I think it's his fourth speech, or maybe his third speech. Job chapter 29. So first we'll look at verses 7 through 9. This is Job remembering the good old days, what it was like before he got sick and lost his family. So 29 verses 7 through 9. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. The aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, and they put their hands on their mouths. In other words, when Job shows up, everyone else gets quiet because he's the boss man. Now, he's not the king. He's not the prince. He's what you might call the power behind the throne. You know, in politics, it's not always the politician who's the strongest or the most powerful person. It's the friend who supplies his money for his campaigns. So uh, there are often people who are rich, like George Soros, for example, who influences the Democratic Party heavily because he gives them billions of dollars. 
that gives him power. He's not the president, he's not a senator, he's not a governor, he's not a mayor, but he's powerful. This is what Job was like. He was a powerful guy. Now verses 15 through 18. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. I searched out cases that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked. I plucked the victims from his teeth. Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. In other words, Job was good to everyone who was sick or poor, the widows and orphans. He helped them all the time. So he was not evil. And he said, I feel in my heart that I will live a long, peaceful life. And in that, he was not correct. That's what you might call a presumption. It would be nice if you had a long, peaceful life. But he was not correct about that. Now verses uh, 25 to the end of the chapter in verse 1 of chapter 30. I chose the way for them. I sat like a chief. I dwelt as a king among the army, as one who comforts mourners. But now they mock me, men younger than I, fathers who I wouldn't even put with the dogs of my flock. In other words, Job went from the big cheese to nobody. In fact, less than nobody. He is now an untouchable. You know, popular novels. Uh, in the turn of the 20th century, a man named Horatio Alger wrote lots of famous novels. And what they're all famous for is they're all what we call rags to riches stories. In other words, some poor orphan living on the streets pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and starts making money and becomes a powerful, rich guy. So it's a happy story, somebody who goes from nothingness to greatness. Well, this is the opposite of a Horatio Alger story. This is riches to rags story. It's a depressing story. He loses everything. Uh, I thought someday, I've never seen a uh, movie, a Christian movie or Jewish movie even, about Job, and I thought it'd be kind of cool to write a script about Job. But then I think about it, and it's like, man, what a downer. I mean, other than the ending, there's nothing happy about it. So you'd have to kind of lighten it up. Or it wouldn't be very popular. But anyway, Job's suffering is on every level of his life. He is now socially, no one will talk to him. Uh, physically, he's a leper. Uh, Wealth-wise, he has nothing. So he's broken. He's, he's a homeless, diseased leper worse than any other kind. I mean, there's one thing if you're homeless, but you have a chance of getting out of it. You know, maybe you could go find a job when you come to your senses. But, no, he can't even go find a job because no one will take him because he's got leprosy. He's contagious. If anyone sees him, let's say someone goes to visit him out in, we'll talk about where he is later. Someone comes to visit him, you can't touch him or you will be unclean for days or weeks. So, how do you help someone like that? It's not an easy thing. Job wants to put, or Satan wants to put Job out of the reach of help. He will never come back. And that's what he wants him to think. Job is supposed to be thinking, I'm doomed. There is no hope for me. I can never go back to society. Now, leprosy really isn't that contagious. We probably overestimate it. But here we see the purpose of giving him leprosy is to take away all of his friends. Now, where was he? It says that he sat on a heap of ashes and scraped himself with a pot shirt. If you don't know what a pot shirt is, I'm sure you have glass at home, although a lot of people now just live with plastic. But anyway, if you've got a glass tumbler at home and you drop it, it breaks and there's pieces. Well, that's what people used to eat and drink out of was clay pots and clay dishes. So if you accidentally drop a clay pot or a dish or you put too much pressure on it, it breaks. And then you've got nothing but a bunch of junky pieces of clay and you throw them in the dump. That's a pot shirt. It's a piece of a broken plate or a cup. Well, Job 
doesn't even want to touch himself. He's got so much yucky pus, he wants to use something else so he doesn't get it on his fingers. So he's scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. But it also says that he's sitting on an ash heap. Now in the Old Testament, an ash heap was the dump, the garbage dump outside the town. Now that meant that all of the dogs and all of, well, they didn't have pet cats then, but dogs and horses and mules and oxen who poop in the streets, you're supposed to scrape it up with a shovel and throw it in the dump and burn it. You, let them, you throw them out there, you can use them for fuel. They burn when they dry out. So anyway, that means that Job is sitting on the piles of ashes left over from all the manure that got burned. So it's smelly. And there's flies everywhere. Probably hornets and things too. Fleas, ticks, who knows. Lots of nasty creatures. But Job is living at the dump. That's where the lepers live. The reason they live at the dump is so that they have potsherds to scrape themselves with, but it's also so they can find food. If you've got nothing and no one will bring you food, what do you get to eat? Whatever scraps people threw out. It's like diving dumpsters, uh, you know, going into the garbage can looking for food. So in other words, Job has gone from the richest, powerfulest guy in town uh, to being nobody who digs scraps out of the ash heaps at the dump. He's gone a long way down. However, Job has one bit of hope left, right? He's got his beloved wife. Okay, so let's talk about his wonderful wife. And why did Satan spare her? I mean, he killed all the kids and all the grandkids and all the servants. Why would he leave his wife? Well, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, now, this was probably early after he left home. So let's say he gets struck with leprosy one month after his kids all died. Then he suddenly gets stuck with leprosy. And what happens? His wife kicks him out of the house. You can't live in the house. I can't have you sitting at my kitchen table, living in my bed, giving me leprosy. So he has to go to the dome with all the rest of the lepers. Now, I don't want to pile on, but I have to admit the early church fathers seem to be right about why Satan didn't kill his wife. Because Satan had plans for the wife. What better way to get to the husband than through the wife, the closest person on earth to him, who he bore ten children with and has lived with her for probably a couple of decades at least. Here's what the commentator said. Chrysostom said he left the wife alive so the devil could use her. Just as he used Eve to get Adam, he used Job's wife to get Job to do exactly what Satan said he would. So the wife says to her diseased, leprous husband, why do you hold fast in your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, here's some of the other people, what other people said about Job's wife. John Calvin called her Satan's tool, and St. Augustine called her the devil's assistant. So, she's got lots of uh, admirers in the early church and commentators. But just as a point of interest, I want to note to you, some of you may have footnotes with a long speech from Job's wife. There is a version of the Septuagint, the ancient Greek Old Testament, called the Syriac version. And the Syriac version gives several verses of what Job's wife said to him, not just this one sentence or two sentences, seven or eight sentences. Okay, now, why did the Syriac, Syriac version add all these verses from the woman? I'm not going to read it because it doesn't add anything useful to the discussion, but I do want to mention why the Syrians agreed to put it in. Why do all the other versions not have it and the Syrians have it in? Well, the Syrians got together to discuss it, and here's what they decided. They assured themselves it was quite impossible 
that a woman would only say one thing since they drone on and on about everything else. So she had to have a long speech. Now, I'm not making it up. I'm just telling you what they said. So that's why they included the long speech. Well, maybe his wife thought she was helping him. I mean, really. Maybe she thought he needs to be put out of his misery. You know, he's better off dead. If he curses God, God will just strike him down and we'll be over with it. He'll be at peace. Well, but that's not really very good advice, even though he is suffering. Whatever she thought, her words were foolish, and Job said so. But he didn't hit her hard. He didn't say, what are you, an idiot? He said, you're speaking like an idiot. There is a little difference. You're acting like a foolish woman. This isn't the right thing to say. I think perhaps he recognized that she wasn't herself. I mean, she's gone through as much as he has, but she doesn't have the patience that he has, apparently. And remember, this happened to some other people, like Simon Peter, foot in mouth disease. Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, you can't do that, Lord. We won't let you. And he turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. So this is a case of Satan using someone who is usually a good person, but to evil effect. And that does happen. And we will see that soon with the other friends. Satan's going to use them too. Okay, so at the end of the chapter, it says in declaration, I shouldn't say the end of the chapter, it says at the end of our passage, Job still did not sin with his lips. It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with evil. That's what it said in chapter 1. Okay, let me read that again. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Two things. No speaking evil and no sinning. I'm not positive, but it seems strange to me that when everything else gets repeated and you drop a piece, maybe that's significant. All it says in this chapter is, Job didn't sin with his lips. They drop off the part about not sinning. Now that is an argument from silence. And in general, an argument from silence is not a good argument. It means you're trying to prove something by the absence of words. It's uh, very tenuous. You can't really prove it. But it might be an implication. So in what way might Job have sinned in this chapter? Not with his lips. But what if it was in his heart? I'm just guessing. We can't be sure. He buried his kids and his grandkids. This horrible disease strikes him. He has to leave his home and live at the dump. He's hungry and pain. And now he spends the day scraping itchy scabs with a piece of pottery at the garbage dump with the fleas and mosquitoes. And then his wife comes and says, why don't you just die? She doesn't want him around anymore. How low can you get? And maybe he's already starting to say in his heart, why has God turned against me? Where is Yahweh? And it's the sins of the heart that come before the sins of the mouth. And the sins of the mouth are coming soon. So maybe the sins of the heart have already started. But I do want to say that depressions, it's obvious that Job is becoming depressed. And we'll see that throughout the book. Depression is not always a sin. In fact, probably a lot of times it's not a sin. It becomes a sin when it turns you away from God, when you no longer go to God for comfort. It is not a sin to be depressed. Um, I say that from personal experience. I've been prone to depression for most of my life, and I've been taking antidepressants for 30 years, and they help a lot. And I know that they help a lot because when I stop taking them, I get depressed again. So it seems to be something in the brain that's not working quite right. I mean, you already knew that I had the damage, but this is proof. But anyway, depression is not a sin in itself. No, but being suicidal is a bad thing. You remember, here's another example of a depressed guy. How about Elijah? Elijah got so depressed that he begged God would kill him. And did God kill him? 
No, God sent an angel to feed him and guard him while he was sleeping. Okay, so he didn't kill him, and he wasn't angry with Elijah. He just says, okay, Elijah, time for a new mission, and he sent him on a new mission. So there is depression. Here's another example, though, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was apparently a wicked man, and he got depressed after he betrayed his master, Jesus. And what did he do? He went out and hung himself, and the rope broke, and he fell, and his body splattered all over the rocks. That was an evil depression, a depression that causes you to sin. Suicide would be a sin. But crying out to God in laments is not a bad thing. Just read the Psalms. King David and others were often depressed about things or sad that things had happened. So it's not the sadness that's the problem. It's what you do with the sadness that becomes a problem. So I could be wrong. Maybe Job hasn't cracked yet, but I suspect he's starting to crack. And the evidence of that's going to come in one week uh, when his friends show up during the one week when his friends show up. So he sits there for months after his wife leaves him, and he thinks about these things, and then his friends are going to show up at the end of chapter 2, and that's where we'll go next week. So uh, we're ending a little early today. Oh, yes, let's have some questions. I find it real interesting. Uh, God put Satan on leash and said, you do what you want, you can't kill him. And his wife says, curse God and die, which is an attempt at taking his life, but providentially, we know that's not going to happen, even though she's adding that peer pressure to uh, this situation. God's already said you can't kill him, so this is a, I'll say, an empty attack. But yes, it is interesting. The, uh, the question comment is that God said you cannot kill him, and yet the devil used the wife to ask him to die. So Satan is not really overstepping because he's not touching Job to kill him, but. God didn't say Job couldn't kill himself. So if the wife can talk him into it, Satan wins all around. Because then what are all the people in the world going to say? God destroyed Job, and Job killed himself. He, he wasn't a good guy after all. God does not get any glory from that. So it is true that the devil would love it if Job would die or kill himself. That would be just perfect to him. Then he wins the bet, so to speak. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Any other questions about this section? Well, yes. Then, speaking of depression, if you know someone that suffers with depression, you think, oh my goodness, what's wrong with that person? But you don't always know what that person is going through, why they feel the way they feel. That's when, if it's a Christian friend, that's when we pray for them. You know, that God, you know, they want them through it. And, and I also, I'm a true believer that. Where we learn from what, from some of the things that we go through in life. You know, I mean, that's, yes. that's where God takes something that's meant for evil to good. But like you said, it's what we do with that depression, you know, is when it becomes, you know, like suicide or whatever. But it's, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, to my knowledge, that depression is not a bad thing. Okay, rephrase that. I don't understand. Okay, Say that depression, depression is not a bad thing? It's not a sin in itself. Oh, that depression, okay. you know. Yes. Depression is not a sin. You can get depressed. If it causes you to leave God, though, then it's done the wrong thing. The purpose of God, you see, it's not that there is no reason. Like I said, God has reasons for what he does to us. We can't always understand the reasons, but I will tell you what some of the reasons are. 
It brings glory to God. Now, how does it bring glory to God? It causes us to mature in ways we didn't know before. It proves, what it said in 1 Peter is it proves the genuineness of our faith. We can survive. God is our strength and our shield. So the purpose of trials, one of the purposes of trials, is to make us better people. And one of the commentators I will talk about more in the future, Mr. Kong, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, K-A-U-N-G. But he says that Job is a perfect and upright man. He is blameless, shall we say, but he has some growing up to do. And why do we know that? Because he grows up some. In other words, until you have suffered, you have no idea what you can do and what God can do for you. It's sort of like I mentioned in one of my earlier sermons or messages, uh, like the Star Wars series, you know, the first one is very happy and good, the second one is real downer, and then the third one is another happy one. Well, the importance of the downer part is that you've got to get tested. You don't know if you're a Jedi until you face Darth Vader. Until you have faced suffering or the devil or a demon or, and come through it, you don't know if you can survive. You're not yet mature. You haven't been on your own yet. God has had Job on training wheels for decades now. Now it's time to take the training wheels off and see if he can ride his bike. So we do grow by our challenges. That's one of the reasons God is doing this for Job. It's not just to prove he's glorious. He gets proof that he's glorious by giving Job strength in these times. So these are other reasons, shall we say, that God does this. Yes, Oliver? Okay, you better ask a question. I'm calling on you. Okay. Tim. You kind of, I guess maybe lose it just now, um, but one thing I've kind of been trying to piece together is, you know, how, we, how the Lord in, in verse 3 repeats this, you know, have you considered my servant Job that there's no like for uh, a blameless and upright man? And then kind of what you brought up earlier where, you know, it's Job not sitting with his lips, but perhaps he was, he's cracking. And so, you know, it doesn't seem that, you know, God then says later on that he's blameless, but it, it, it seems as though, you know, we have this situation where the, the devil is asking the Lord to, you know, test Job's faith. It almost seems like he's kind of failing here to some extent. Well, Job or God? Job. Because if he's kind of getting cracked in sin, that kind of seems to support the devil's points made early in chapter 2. And it's not really until chapter 42, I guess, where you know, he acknowledges that. Oh, no. I, well, in my opinion, we will talk about when did Job obviously start to sin. I think it was in chapter 3, when he first curses the day he was born. Now, he gradually gets more and more angry at God until at the end he's basically saying, you're unjust. If you come down here, I'll show you that you're a jerk. I mean, so Job's sin does become greater and greater throughout the book. But I think it starts at chapter 3 when he, in his first lament. It's not that he was wrong to lament, but it's that he starts, he is no longer content. We talked about the sin of covetousness as in uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Covetousness is not being content with your lot. Job is no longer content with his lot as of chapter 3 for sure. Why didn't God just kill me? Why am I not dead? Why did God create the sun and the earth to shine on me when I'm feeling so bad? These are questioning the goodness of God. Now, it's not un-understandable. Un I understand where he's coming from. And David says things like that too at times. But with David, in the Psalms, after he laments, he always comes back and says, but I will still hope in God. Job doesn't do that. Job goes worse and worse. We call it, well, I shouldn't say we call it, I'm not a psychologist, but I know in the people who are psychology, they talk about spiraling down, where you start thinking bad thoughts, and they get worse and worse, and you start worrying about everything, and you keep going down farther and farther. That's where Job's going. He's not coming back up. There's one brief part where he has a little hope. 
which is the grace of God. But he is not responding in the way David is. He's given up. And I'm not saying he's, well, I mean, he's wrong, but I'm not saying I don't understand that he was wrong. But what you're saying, though, about chapter 2, early in chapter 2, God says he's still blameless and upright. That was after the first day of testing, maybe a month later. But this thing at the in the middle of chapter 2, that's when his wife shows up. And so I think between that time and this time, he's no longer... He's still not sinning with his lips until he gets to chapter 3. But I think he's begun to reject God already. Now, people could disagree with me. Um, that's just my perception of it. But God spoke those words earlier in chapter 2, long before his wife came and uh, he was sick. Yeah, I guess the point I guess I was kind of bringing in that was the devil says, you know, he will surely curse you to your face. Right. And there were actually, you know, maybe he has these, um, you know, these cracks and, you know, this right he does not curse God to his face ever in the book in so many words but by the end of the book he's practically cursing God to his face he never comes out and says well I don't even want to use those terms but darn you God he doesn't exactly say that but he he's getting at it there are ways of tiptoeing around the minefield and you're still stepping on the mines um, and I think he's stepping on them by then but yes at this point he is not cursing God with his lips but the devil's got several months to work with, and I think he starts to do that. Any other questions? All right, well, then we'll finish a little early. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you suffered in many ways like Job did, maybe more, because you took on yourself the sins of the whole world. But the story of Job is still a very poignant reminder to us that our lives are like grass, and that you might decide to glorify yourself in harming us one day. It's not because you don't love us, but it's because you gain glory from proving our perseverance. You promised that the saints will persevere, and Job did persevere, even though he faltered, just like Peter faltered big time, and then he still persevered and became your servant again, so to speak. Lord, uh, those who are under your care and those who are saved by your grace will never fall entirely, but we will falter at times. So, Lord, help us to learn from this example. Amen. Yeah. 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 Yeah.